Today we we have with us Yan Sui. He is an AWS Serverless hero and the author of Production Ready Serverless and another book, uh, Serverless Architecture on AWS. Currently, Yan is a principal consultant at the Burning Monk Limited. Yan has been building on AWS since 2010 and has taught lot of developers through his online courses, including me. So I have done two of his courses, AppSync Masterclass and Production Ready Serverless. And my knowledge base on AWS has increased a lot doing his courses. So I'm a huge fan. Apart from this, he has also written 150 plus articles on AWS and spoken in over 150 plus conferences. He's the host of Real World Serverless Podcast. I can keep on going on talking about his accomplishments, but let me just welcome Yan Sui to the podcast and learn from him directly. So Yan, it's a pleasure being able to talk to you in this podcast. Oh, thanks for, for having me. It's great to talk to people who's uh, taking my courses and uh, still want to talk to me afterwards. Uh, so I'm not doing too badly there. Yeah. But yeah, thanks for the invitation. It's good, it's good to be here. And your courses, are, it's like I was desperate to learn about AWS and at that point I learned about your courses and I did the production ready serverless it was there I did that and I felt I learned so much that I was excited when I heard that you're gonna uh, do the Twitter clone so I was waiting for that course to come up and as soon as it came I just enrolled in it yeah thank you so tell me about your early career how did you get introduced to AWS yeah, so I guess uh, I started my, um, I guess, a software engineering career at Credit Suisse. That was, uh, what, 2006. I was just finishing university. At the, and the back then, Credit Suisse was still a, a reputable company. It was still, uh, I don't know, uh, its reputation was still intact. Uh, none of the things that you've heard about Credit Suisse in the last 10 years, uh, I think back then it was still a pretty good, uh, a reputable employer. So I was there for a couple of years, and uh, it was, well, it was became quite apparent to me that uh, you know if i want to be on the cutting edge of uh, technology i had to go somewhere else uh, and luckily at the time i was able to get a job into um, a gaming company building games for well, social games for uh, for facebook and it was there when i first experienced aws because uh, when i joined the team was really 100 percent on aws uh, we were running a lot of stuff on ec2 instances uh, because back then that was 2009, so AWS was still quite young. There was uh, a small handful of services like S3, uh, SQS, uh, EC2, and things like that. There was no VPC, there was no DynamoDB. You, know, you had the SimpleDB, which uh, is still accessible if your, you know, your account had it, but uh, you can't see it in the console anymore. Uh, so it's very different uh, back then. And that was my first, I guess, experience into AWS building, you know, Facebook games. And you know, back then, uh, we were, you know, we, we we had games that had uh, you know, millions of uh, daily active users, which you know, sounds pretty good on paper. But then, when compared to things like FarmView, that had uh, you know, hundreds of millions of users, daily active users, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're still pretty small. But even then, you, you know, I still learn a lot about uh, how to build for scale. And uh, some of the challenges you run into when you have to, you know, build systems with many, many users. But yeah, that was uh, that was my entry into AWS, and since then, uh, I've gone through the same journey that many people have in the last, I guess, fifteen years. 
you know, you've got your containers, uh, so you, you, you know, you went into the container environment, and then the Lambda came along and became more of a thing. I think uh, after 2016, when they introduced uh, support for API Gateway, so you can do a lot more. You can build entire applications using Lambda, API Gateway, DynamoDB, and so on. So the last couple of years, I've really just been really entirely focused on serverless, uh, and that's just been my passion since then. Because for a long time, I was uh, doing stuff on EC2 and containers. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with where you have to worry about capacity planning. You have to, uh, every couple of weeks or a couple of months, uh, patch your machine images, uh, install security updates and all this other stuff, which you know, back then probably takes about 70, 80% of my time. So I always wondered, you know, why am I doing the same thing over and over? This is not fun. This is uh, eating up most of my time. And all I want is just write a couple of lines of uh, business logic, and that's all I need to do. But to get to do that, I have to do all these other things first. So when Lambda came along, and certainly when it became more mature and able to build entire applications using you know serverless components, uh, that just became a uh, well a no-brainer for me for building most applications. There's a few cases where it's not a good fit, but um, I guess uh, recently we've had the, the the Prime Video article, which yeah. uh, just blew up the internet. I've written an article about my thoughts on that and why a lot of the takes are just bad. You know, serverless is not right for everything, but for most things out there, I think it's a good, it's a really good choice, at least to start off with. Yeah. So I remember I was writing an article, so I thought let's just implement the tiny URL by myself. And I was able to do it in a few hours using the serverless technology. So it was, it's pretty cool, actually. What was your motivation going to the freelance or independent consultant route? Yeah, I guess uh, for a lot of the roles I've had the last, maybe the last part of my sort of full-time employment, I start off with, uh, you know, just doing hands-on you know, software engineer, going to senior engineer, going to principal engineer, and more and more you kind of get uh, get to the, once you get to kind of principal engineers, uh, you're less measured on how much output you personally make. And I think you judge more and more based on your overall impact. And oftentimes, uh, you know, when I was in principal engineer, the, the most impactful things I could do wasn't to ship a couple of lines of code to production, but to identify, you know, problems that we have as an engineering team or as an organization and try to find solutions for those, which could be, you know, creating knowledge sharing book clubs and all these other things, which has a bigger impact than actually just shipping code and a lot of the work that I was doing as a principal engineer, I think, really helped prepare me towards a consulting role where a lot of time is about you know, listening to other people and trying to help them identify the problems you know, that they really need to solve and how best to solve those as opposed to just you know, putting your headphones up and then start writing code yourself. And I guess my motivation towards going towards a freelancing is um, really more about uh, having more uh, work-life balance and being able to choose uh, things that I want to work on as opposed to just doing whatever that gets assigned to you uh, at work. Yeah. So as, a, as, a, as an independent consultant, I'm able to do a lot more projects that I'm passionate about and I'm able to work on a lot of different uh, client projects uh, at the same time. I'm able to advise uh, clients on different industries, different scales, and those from startups to enterprises, they have very different contexts and very different kind of problems. And that um, you learn a lot in terms of, uh, okay, you know, people talk about that there's no silver bullet, there's the right tool for the job. And it's all about the context, all about understanding, you know, the, the environment you're working in 
and being to you know, work with lots of different companies and different kind of positions and contexts and industries and constraints really helps you kind of broaden your horizon and your thinking in terms of you know, understanding when is a solution a good fit because uh, I think that's one of the things I find uh, frustrating with reading a lot of the articles and uh, especially technical ones is uh, well they just go straight into the solution doesn't really explain you know what's the problem uh, and also it doesn't describe what's the particular context in which this solution works because you can't oftentimes you know a solution that works for Amazon or Google it just doesn't make sense for a startup that just wants to ship but you no know, tiny URL app uh, things like that right the, the the scale the complexity the lot of the sort of challenges are just very different and the same goes to startups compared to enterprises there's the sort of regulatory and security requirements in the inter enterprise environment is just a whole different ball game. Having the ability to work with lots of different clients uh, is a massive learning opportunity for me and something that I really enjoyed since I've gone into this sort of freelancing and consulting role. I guess in terms of motivation, the having more work-life freedom, balance is, uh, is definitely number one. But also, I think you know, for someone working in the Europe, you can also have much higher earning in terms of you know how much money how many able to make uh, working as a consultant working for yourself as opposed to working for uh, even for a big tech company i think uh, that's again is very different for people that are in some of the cities in the us uh, where you know i've keep reading salaries that are just just you know, so so ridiculously high compared to what is available over here in europe and also, I also understand not every single city in the U.S. get the same kind of level of salaries, but certainly look at salaries in San Francisco and New York. That's very different to someone from, say, Texas or other uh, other city, uh, other states. Uh, but yeah, compared to Europe, you know, in Europe, your earning potentials is not you know, quite as high. So working as an independent consultant, uh, you're able to have much higher ceiling in terms of your earning potential. So that's also something that uh, that's you no know, that was part of my thinking as well. But of course, it depends on how much I'm able to, you know, how much work I'm able to generate for myself. Luckily, a lot of the things I've done in the last I don't know 15 years in terms of the blogging, the public speaking, has really helped build up uh, a foundation uh, for me to get clients. Uh, in, in that case, so uh, yeah, it's, it's, so far it's worked out pretty good for me. Yeah. Anytime when I have some questions, I try to find if you have an answer for it. So the most recent one being the magic URL. So I read through a blog and I actually needed it in my day-to-day -day work and it worked out well. So, yeah. Yeah, I remember doing something similar, like a URL shortener back a few years ago. I think I wrote about that as well. Oh, With, you have? I'll check it yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, don't worry. It's, uh, yeah, I've, uh, I've done a lot of different uh, small things like that, uh, which is part of the house of having a really long, uh, yeah. having worked in the, in the uh, well, for 15 yeah. years, uh, you, you know, you get to have worked on a lot of different things. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I've got lots of articles, uh, you know, things that I've written, I've done in the past. Uh, every time I work on something interesting, I try to, I try to write about it, uh, which is uh, you know, something that uh, I think helps me understand the problem better myself as well. But also to just you know, share knowledge uh, with other people who are hopefully doing something similar. So you are working on something and then you write your articles as well so how do you balance that in terms of time management yeah so that's uh, that's interesting i guess now that i don't work i don't have a full-time job it's a lot easier but you know, back when i had a full-time job uh, a lot of time i did that as part of the job you know, as, as you're like a senior or principal engineer one of the things that uh, a lot of companies want to do nowadays is to you know hire good engineers and one of the things you can do is to in terms of building that uh, uh, that brand for the for, for the company within the 
developer community is to have the engineering blog. So a lot of times, luckily, you know, sharing what we've done at work is also part of the job. So able to spend some time to do that uh, work. But other than that, uh, for my personal blog, uh, a lot of time I just do it in my own time. You know, things that I've done at work uh, that I can share or things that I've done outside of work that I want to, you know, talk about, you know, cool personal project. And a lot of times there's, there's overlap, you know, pr- a personal project that I work on will one day become something that we use at work or vice versa. So I guess ultimately it's something that uh, I was uh, passionate about in terms of writing, uh, in terms of uh, sharing. So, you know, you make time, you you, you make sacrifices, uh, don't go out for drinks with your friends uh, and stay at home oh. and write a blog post. Uh, uh, but honestly, writing a blog post, uh, it takes a few hours, maybe a day or two, depending on know what kind of blog post you're writing about uh, sometimes it takes a lot longer but it's not as big uh, a time commitment as people think especially once once you've gotten used to it you know in terms of uh, uh, writing you know it's, it's a skill that you develop like any muscle that uh, you just get better at it so you become more efficient over time as well so but yeah it's something that uh, you know that i'm passionate about and when you're passionate about something you'll find time okay that completely makes sense Okay, so now the next question. What services do you provide as a consultant? Yeah, so I do all sorts. Uh, I mean, I work for myself as independent. So uh, I basically just help clients in whatever way makes sense. Uh, so long as their project is mostly serverless. I've had a lot of requests uh, for help about, you know, EC2 and containers. And uh, I mean, I've done stuff with those, but it's just not something that I'm particularly interested in nowadays. So I tend to just, uh, okay, tell people that that's not what I do. But otherwise, in terms of the things that I actually worked for, well, worked with clients on, I've, I've done everything from just, you know, doing like a, an advisory thing where um, they they will have a meeting with me to discuss and uh, do reviews, uh, to doing some kind of audit uh, for the applications they've got, to you know, training, to ju- actually just, you know, building a whole system for uh, for clients some more sort of interesting examples i had a client i think about two years ago they had an idea for a new social network and uh, they have to get it out quickly because it has to be launched before the um, university semester starts in the year so they had a tight deadline and a, and a budget uh, it was a really interesting project so you know i signed on and we actually built a new social network in a couple of weeks and they launched it and that was a really interesting experience. And um, yeah, I've, I've had a few clients where I just, uh, you know, build the entire backend for them. I'm the one man, uh, one man backend team. And with, you know, I guess things like serverless, uh, I'm able to do so much on my own, working part time for clients compared to uh, stuff that, you know, used to take a whole team to do and also take much longer to do. So yeah, no, I really enjoyed working with uh, serverless technology because uh, it just lets you get so much more done. Uh, so I think for a lot of the smaller clients, uh, it just makes a lot more sense, not just from the operational cost, but also just from the speed and how many people you need to bring on to to ship a product. Yeah, especially when you, know, when, when you want to get something done quickly and, and still do well. Yeah, serverless is definitely the, the right choice. Okay, that, that completely makes sense. Okay, so from your past experience, any interesting challenge or project which you enjoyed a lot and it was challenging as well? So, and how did you handle it? Yeah, so there's, uh, I mean, there's lots of things I can't talk, I can't talk about publicly, but uh, in terms of uh, like career-wise, uh, there's some, uh, you know, one of the more interesting stuff I worked on, 
was the background. I was uh, working for a games uh, company. Uh, we were building a MOBA, a, mobile, a multiplayer online uh, battle arena. So think of it, you know, think like Fortnite and games like that, but for yeah. mobile games instead. So, so uh, you have to deal with, um, I guess, the, the, the fact that a lot of mobile connections are not very stable. And especially if you want to launch in the countries with a poor internet infrastructure, uh, you have to worry about really high packet drop rate uh, ratios and things like that. So we you know to build this mobile game, we actually develop a sort of custom binary protocol for the application layer that's able to pack the, the bytes really tightly together so that we're able to send a lot of data with a minimal amount of uh, uh, packets. And we also uh, found that we try some of the some of the sort of off-the-shelf solutions for the networking tech and we did the, we did a bunch of tests in the I think was it uh, we we did a we did a test launching like a like a beta version of the game uh, we we're working on in the, both the Netherlands and I think in the was in Vietnam or somewhere like that. So we have a sample for country with good internet and a country with a poor uh, mobile internet, and we found that the packet drop rate was something like uh, you know five or ten percent in the in Vietnam. So you know, the game becomes almost unplayable. And on TCP implementations and even UDP implementations for the off-the-shelf game server solution we, uh, we used, uh, it just wasn't good enough. So we ended up building a custom UDP protocol ourselves, and that actually worked out a lot more reliable, especially for the uh, for, for countries where the internet infrastructure was not very good and there was a high number of uh, high ratio of uh, dropped packets. But yeah, that was one of the more interesting, like technically challenging projects I worked on. Unfortunately, that was not serverless at all because it's, you, know, you need a lot of uh, persistent connections. So uh, we, you know, we run a bunch of servers uh, for, uh, for that. But uh, otherwise, uh, there's also a lot of, I think the project I talked about earlier just now in terms of social network, that was really interesting, really challenging in terms of the, the timeline and the fact that it's, uh, it's the entire system. And uh, we had to build from the ground up and uh, we had a, you know, a couple of weeks of time to get it done. And so that was a really interesting uh, project, and I learned a lot about uh, you know AppSync. Uh, and uh, I think you mentioned you took the AppSync masterclass. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of things that uh, that went into the AppSync masterclass were things that I learned uh, from that project in terms of uh, you know building social network on AppSync and also running AppSync in production. So those were yeah. probably two examples that uh, so came to mind uh, straight away in terms of uh, interesting projects I worked on recently. When you mentioned about multiplayer game online, so one of the games which is pretty famous in our country is PUBG. I don't know if you're aware of it. Oh, yeah, yeah, PUBG is, is, is massive over here as well. So I was a huge fan and it actually worked on low inter internet conditions as well. So it's pretty cool and it's a very challenging problem to solve. So. Especially for mobile, like mobile-wise, you know, um, at least on, on PC, the, the, the connections are still stable. You still have to do a lot of the networking in terms of making sure that uh, you know, uh, you're, you're very efficient, uh, fast. Uh, but on mobile, the network is just so much less reliable. So mm -hmm. you know, when we were testing uh, our game on the Unity and uh, you know, it, everything looks good, but then we, we, we put it on the mobile the devices and suddenly... And uh, no, you start seeing the frame rates just drops and people just stuck. It's very different. But yeah, the networking aspect for a lot of those games are really fascinating. There's a lot of um, so really clever optimization that they put into the, those games to, to make it appear to be you know, really real time, even though there's, there's a lot of things that are not 100%. You know, they do a lot of tricks to, to appear, to make it appear more sort of real time and synchronized, uh, which is uh, really cool. Cool. And then I also like looked into your profile and I found out that you've also worked on a, in Dazan. 
DAZ, and I'm not sure what the company name is. It's Dazan itself, right? It's uh, pronounced uh, the zone. You know how in sports, there's this like a metaphor of uh, you're in the zone where you know you're, you're completely, completely focused now you're at the top of the game that's what the DAZN is supposed to pronounce uh, the zone uh, but uh, yeah it's, it's so bizarre most people in the company pronounce it wrong we have a lot of a lot of engineers call it doesn't okay. <laughs> but yeah don't worry it's, it's, it's called the zone okay it's the zone so yeah with respect to sports there's like a lot of spikes which happens right when the game is getting streamed and all of a sudden, people start watching it. So how do you handle those kind of uh, scenarios, both in serverless and non-serverless? Yeah, so with The Zone, it's, um, uh, we used to call it the Netflix for sports streaming. Basically, you know, the, the, well, it was a multi-billion dollar project because the, the licensing for a lot of uh, sports uh, events are actually really, really expensive. And uh, they also... Um, because it's live event, it's not on-demand videos. Uh, so a lot of the things that the Netflix was able to do and optimize, uh, it doesn't apply to the zone quite as much. Uh, you know, like you know how Netflix talks about how they're able to kind of build their own uh, content distribution network. They're able to cache a lot of content in those uh, CDN nodes themselves. So they doesn't have to go to the origin. So a lot of that works for on-demand uh, content, but not for live event that you want to stream. Another thing you find with live events is that, uh, well, you know, if there's a big cricket or a football match it kicks off and there's a big uh, following, a lot of audience, uh, they, you know, they're going to you know, set up a, a set up a, like an alarm. They remind themselves to log in, but uh, everyone logs in like a minute before the match starts. So you have this crazy spike in traffic. I think at peak when I was there, so I left the zone in the 2020. So when I was there at peak, um, they had about 2 million, just over 2 million concurrent viewers. Uh, and pretty much everybody logs in and, and, and start watching within about you know minute before the match starts. So your spike goes from almost nothing to you know, tens of thousands concurrent uh, uh, requests per second. So it's a uh, it's very spiky workload, uh, but luckily that spike completely uh, predictable. And because of how spiky it is, we can't use Lambda for any API along that critical path. But you know, that spike only affects APIs along that path where somebody logs in and then uh, start watching, you know, click on a tile to, uh, uh, in this sort of list of uh, available uh, content and start watching a match. So there's a number of APIs that gets, uh, that gets called along that critical path. So for pretty much any of those APIs, uh, we just have a basic rule that says uh, you can't use Lambda for any of those because of how spiky the traffic is, because we will run into Lambda's, um, there's a hard limit called uh, the burst capacity limit, uh, which tells you how quickly you're able to scale the concurrency for your Lambda functions uh, within the region. And uh, for the for the bigger regions, it's the 3000. And uh, our spikes are just too spiky for that, uh, unfortunately. But even say, saying that, um, so most of the services along that critical path uh, runs on uh, containers where we're able to have more control around the scaling with, uh, you know, to say with uh, application, scale, uh, uh, application um, a scaler. So we can just say scale, scale the number of containers from zero, from five to, you know, 300, maybe like 10 minutes before the, 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 the match is uh, scheduled to start. So you have a lot more control around that and it's great for, really big uh, spikes that are predictable. 
So okay. Lambda is great for when you have a, a flight social network example where uh, we don't have a schedule for like big event happening, but you are you are going to get a lot of uh, spikes just randomly because of like influencer posted something and suddenly you've got lots of people you know, reading content and, uh, and doing stuff on the platform. So those unpredictable spikes, uh, Lambda is actually really good, for, uh, really good for that. Assuming that you know, your spikes are not so high that you're going to hit the uh, the burst capacity limit. So unless you're like a, a you know, Twitter level platform where you have people like, uh, I don't know, uh, Elon Musk or Trump or Obama or, or any of these uh, sort of, you know, big uh, um, uh, real world uh, I guess celebrities or whoever that's got millions and millions of followers that when they post something, suddenly you've got like a million people all doing impressions and clicking stuff. So unless you have that, Lambda is actually really good for dealing with those uh, really small spikes uh, uh, during the day. So even on the zone example, uh, we do have a few APIs along the critical path that uses Lambda and API gateway because the API responses are highly cacheable. So we could just say, you know, put it behind the CDN like CloudFront. And so the API responses are going to be cached anyway. So you know, even though the, 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 the spikes are really big, it doesn't hit any of your Lambda functions. It hits the CloudFront uh, uh, cache and that's it. So that's how we can handle a lot of spikes with you know, Lambda. Uh, but as a default, we just say any services, any APIs along that critical path, uh, you shouldn't use Lambda you know, unless you really know what you're doing because you know, your service is, uh, is, uh, is highly cacheable. But you know, saying that, we have lots of other services that uh, you know, doesn't have that kind of spike. Uh, there's a lot of services uh, in the platform that just uh, that handles payment, that are doing lots of other things, account management. That's not going to get you know fifty thousand requests a second from nothing. So, uh, so for those, uh, you no, know, we use Lambda and API Gateway as a you know, as our default uh, option. Okay, that completely makes sense. And the idea of critical path, whatever APIs comes in the critical path, for that there can be a special handling, and we could use containers instead of Lambda. That's a very good insight. Yeah, I mean, that's something that a lot of people kind of miss about the Prime Video uh, article. I mean, everyone keeps saying, oh, yeah, Prime Video move uh, away from uh, uh, serverless, a microservice to, uh, to monolith, or Amazon move to mo uh, monolith. I mean, you're talking about one specific team, one specific service within a really large company. You, you, work, for, uh, you work for Google now and used to work for AWS, uh, you know, there are such big companies with hundreds of different teams and you know, thousands of services. Every one of them has got a different uh, traffic pattern, a different use case. So any of these companies would be using different technologies in different departments and different teams of services. So have one example that that's, you know, that goes uh, from serverless to to containers when they have really high traffic. Uh, is you, know, you can't just say the whole company has moved away to this other thing. It doesn't make any sense. And also, I think that the, the, the team actually did the right thing uh, because they, they use serverless to get started quickly. And then they realize, oh, the traffic is much higher than we expected because, you know, I guess uh, they didn't think many people use their service, but it turns out you know, it's a good service and people use it. The, the super went up and, and then they made a decision to, to pivot. And I think that makes a lot of sense that as your architecture evolves, as your, as your super changes, you need to reevaluate re your architecture. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's a good article, but unfortunately, a lot of people just kind of misread it or they just, I don't know, miss the point and... And, and yeah, there's just so many uh, bad takes out there, unfortunately. If we take example of startups as well. So initially, 
when you build, you need to execute fast and you need to build a system quickly. And I think the serverless is very good in that way and it can scale as well. And uh, when you start realizing that our traffic pattern is going to exceed even what lambdas can hold, then we can decide to move move on to the other architecture. That's my understanding. As yeah, well. absolutely. I mean, the I mean, architecture is not a static thing. It's, it should evolve. Yeah. And, uh, and as, you know, as, as your traffic pattern changes, as, your, you know, as, as you find the market fit and suddenly you're, you know, you're doing 10x or 100x traffic uh, that, than you were before, uh, you should reevaluate and change your and evolve your architecture. That just makes a lot of sense. And uh, you know, going from serverless, I give you a lot of speed to moving things into containers where you, you know you can optimize for cost and the maybe even really high super scenarios. That's all reasonable. Yeah. What's not reasonable is the some of the bad takes that people have been uh, writing about this whole prime video thing. <laughs> I think uh, most of the cases, I tend to ignore the negative stuff which is going around in the internet and like just observe and try to understand myself. Oh, especially Twitter. Twitter is just such a... So I also wanted to ask, so there are two types of streaming system. One is the live streaming and the other one, as you mentioned, like Prime Video and Netflix. What does it take to build a live streaming system versus like live streaming when a person is playing and that exactly thing that exact stuff is shown on the screen so what happens there when you build that system so i mean for the zone we, uh, we are streaming live uh, live video content uh, as opposed to on-demand video content like uh, netflix but uh, most of that is actually done by um uh, uh, by uh, the cdns uh, they have the uh, at the zone they had the uh, I think about four or five different uh, CDN providers that they work with and for the different countries that they work with a different provider. And I guess the one thing I guess they both have to worry about is the bandwidth cost, which is, I guess, a, I guess the way you spend a lot of, well, most of your infrastructure costs is going to go towards uh, bandwidth uh, cost. Is, and sometimes uh, you can get into trouble with, um, with the countries uh, as well. I think Netflix had this problem where you know, they were using up so much bandwidth that certain uh, ISPs in certain countries are to sort of uh, throttle them. The zone has similar problems. I think, uh, I don't know if this is a public knowledge or not, but uh, when they launched in Italy, I think the, the first weekend there was like a big match between Juventus and somebody else. And uh, anyway, over that weekend, they were, they were, they, they accounted for something like 50% of internet traffic uh, for that one weekend. So, and, and there was a lot of, um, Pushback from ISPs within the internet, uh, from within Italy, uh, and I think there's people trying to charge them more money for bandwidth usage and things like that. So that's probably the, the, the sort of the common challenge that uh, any sort of streaming content provider have to deal with. For people that you know work on the the zone platform, like myself, though, we really don't have to worry about the streaming side of uh, things very much because most of that is all commodity. That stuff is uh, very well uh, commoditized. Uh, You've got a number of different CDN providers uh, in every region, and they all provide similar capabilities in terms of them to not just stream on-demand content, like from, from like S3 bucket or something like that, but you can actually stream live content and, uh, and as well. Um, so a lot of that kind of just works out of the box, and there are services you can use, uh, again, uh, off-the-shelf solution you can use that connects the content from the, uh, the sort of video cameras on the side of a football pitch, your CDN, so all of that is very much uh, uh, industrialized, uh, very much uh, commoditized. Uh, so 
we didn't have to worry about that stuff very much um, ourselves. The, the one thing I would say that uh, was a big concern for the zone, maybe less so for you know, someone like Netflix, is that um, because it's live content, so uptime is very important. If mm -hmm. you are streaming like a Netflix movie and the Netflix down for half an hour, you can just you know, go have some dinner, come back and then watch it again. But if it's a live event, then okay, well, half an hour later, the, the event's finished. There's nothing to, to watch or, you know, you, know, you kind of just miss the, the whole excitement that everybody else enjoyed. So there's uh, additional considerations around uh, um, you know, reliability and uh, uh, resilience, not just from the fact that uh, you're going to uh, lose some revenue because people can't watch their favorite uh, TV show, but for someone like The Zone where, you know, you're live streaming, live you know, football match or whatever, you can lose a license. You can lose a license if you can't provide the service that you say uh, you have. And mind you, these licenses are like you know, hundreds of millions or multi-billion dollar uh, licenses for a few years. So you know, if you lose that, it's, you know, it's game over as business. Uh, so mm -hmm. you know, reliability is probably the one thing that's, um, that kind of separates uh, the live streaming uh, from, say, streaming on-demand content. There's just more emphasis on reliability. So the zone actually has um, works with multiple uh, CDM providers uh, and uh, on the both the front end and back end, there's a, 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 fail, a, a failover so that if the if the CDN fails and they have experienced this in the past, then at least they can you know, quickly switch over to the backup CDN and uh, there's there's some kind of A/B testing as well so that we can check uh, the the quality of different CDN providers and uh, from what I've heard from people that works with the the CDN side of things, um, there's a big difference in terms of uh, 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 performance and uh, and all of that stuff with different CDN providers in different countries. So the same CDN provider might work well in America, but may not work as well in the Italy. So there's a lot of complexities um, complexities around uh, managing the CDN side of things as well, which mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't really involved with day to day. But uh, but yeah, that's probably the just the side of things that's uh, re that's you know, different between uh, uh, streaming live video content versus uh, on-demand video content. Okay, that completely makes sense. Okay, so then I also wanted to talk about or discuss about how you do your consultancy projects. Like, do you have a system set up or how you take up a project and then how you execute it, something around that? Okay, so if you're talking about the projects where I actually deliver the solution for the client, then the, yeah, I typically take on the, the entire project end-to-end. From setting up the AWS environment, the AWS accounts, and AWS organizations uh, to actually delivering the project based on the the, the client's spec. So I've got a I don't really have a like a fixed structure in place. I tend to be you know, quite fluid based on you know some clients have a have a you know really loose idea of this is roughly what I want. Here's like a, a spec for what the UI is going to look like, and then the, I just work out with the front end guys. Uh, okay. Right, so you're gonna do this page, and these are the you know, the, the data points you need, and then we kind of just work out like a, a schema for the API, so we can start both working uh, towards that. But sometimes the clients have a uh, you know really detailed spec. Uh, I've got one client that gave me was like a hundred page long spec for everything they want to build. So so again, we kind of you know that's a bit more rigid, so a more sort of upfront design as opposed to more the kind of the, the less uh, upfront, but more ad hoc in terms of uh, you know, the kind of give, you a, give, it, you know, give us an idea and we kind of work out a lot of the details and fill in the blanks or 
have to go back to the client and say, how did this actually even work? So just get more clarification on that uh, versus a client that have really clear idea. Okay, you click this button, it does this and then do that. So no, I don't really have a fixed way of working, but I tend to use a number of uh, you know, tools that I often use uh, for the organization side of things. I use OrgFormation, which um, gives you infrastructure as a code to manage the organization, uh, AWS organizations, uh, you know, the, the, the org units, the server control policies, but it also allows you to create the um, landing zones. And it's the, the, the great thing that you can do compared to the actual landing zone thing you get from control tower uh, is that uh, you can have this um, CloudFormation like template um, that says uh, within this template, I'm going to create, for example, uh, for setting up CloudTrail and having all your accounts ship the CloudTrail logs to a S3 bucket in an audit account. Um, so I can have this one template that says, okay, here's the S3 bucket, create this uh, resource in the account, uh, this, the, the, in, in the audit account, and then create the, the CloudTrail sort of config, configuration for all the other accounts apart from the audit account, and then set up this uh, forwarding so that for your CloudTrail log, ship the logs to the S3 bucket using the CloudFormation sort of ref uh, syntax, but you're referencing a resource in the same template that are deployed to a different account. So automation is able to take your so your, your template and work out, okay, I need to provide, I need to provision this S3 bucket in the audit account, and then I need to create the, the, the log streams in uh, sorry, uh, CloudTrail logs uh, in the other accounts, and it needs, it's able to work out this resource graph similar to how CloudFormation does it and work out what to provision first. And then it's able to also split your thing up, your, your template up into lots of CloudFormation templates for different accounts that, that gets run. So it does things that um, uh, you, you have to kind of do yourself with like some scripting, with uh, landing zone and with a stack set and all these other things, but put it together in, in, in like a, in, in a package that almost like you know, working with CloudFormation. So CloudFormation, super powerful tool, uh, and I tend to use the server framework for the actual project itself, where I do all my serverless Lambda stuff. And, uh, and yeah, that's kind of the, kind of the tool that I use uh, most of the time. Otherwise, how I structure them, don't have a specific way to structure things. Uh, again, it's all based on uh, what the requirements is and uh, what makes most sense for each project. But the tools you mentioned, the uh, all formation is it. So that's pretty cool. Now I want to uh, discuss about your books, Production Ready Serverless and uh, the serverless architecture on AWS. So what was your motivation while writing these books? Like what motivated you to write these? I think uh, in both cases, it wasn't really my idea to, to, to write them. So Production Ready Serverless was the, probably the first fully featured uh, video course, the serverless development on AWS. And it was uh, Manning, I think they had an idea to do this kind of course and they reached out to me and uh, I just kind of said yes. So I can't take the full credit for, uh, uh, for, for or deciding to do something, but I think uh, the the idea I had was very different to what they they had in mind. So I was really want to sort of do something that the highlights, uh, you know, a lot of things you see online with you know, Lambda serverless is uh, oh now let's just do this thing, put something together quickly, and it, you know it, it, it is great. It looks impressive that how much you can do in a short space of time. From the experience of actually running stuff in production, you know that, uh, okay, you need to be more of that, more than that. You need to think about how you're going to structure logging, 
how you're going to actually monitor things, uh, uh, you know, what alerts you need to have. A lot of most of boring stuff that you got to think about, which uh, no one really uh, was trying to, to kind of teach you. Uh, and uh, think, you know, thinking about how to you know, handle failures so when you're doing stream processing or asynchronous uh, um, processing for you know, SNS or EventBridge and things like that. So I wanted to do something that kind of you know, shows, highlights the, the sort of production aspects of serverless development. So I kind of pivoted the idea that uh, Manning gave me for the, for, uh, for the video course uh, as, we, as we were developing it. Uh, and so we, you know, we named it. We, uh, we named it the production ready serverless. And then I found that uh, with the video course, uh, because it took me, I think, about a year and a half or two years to get the first version out for uh, for Manning, and um, and very quickly things got out of date. <laughs> uh, and so, and, and because with uh, with video courses, um, if you change something that impacts lesson one, you have to change lesson two and all the way back yeah. to that lesson hundred. Um, so that's that's because it's very difficult to maintain an update. So after that, I actually turned what I had for the video course into a workshop, which you know, which is the one that you took. And uh, so that workshop is something that uh, is less uh, sort of video on demand video, but the more there's a lot more some sort of instructions that here I tell you how to do something, and then I kind of help you and um, and uh, and as, as you're working through that, the, the exercises, I, you know, I give you a hand. To, you know, when you when you're stuck, I help you sort of troubleshoot and all that. So I turned into a workshop format, and I've been running it for the last I want to say two, maybe three years now, and I think that's been maybe like up to a thousand people who's uh, taken a workshop as well, which has you know, has been doing really well. And then uh, serverless architecture on AWS second edition, that was something that Peter Sparsky, uh, whom I've known for a while from the uh, serverless uh, sort of community, uh, he was the, I think, CTO at uh, a cloud guru, and he, was, he wrote the first version of that book with um, uh, Adrian Neer, who's the general manager on Lambda team. So they were starting on the second edition. And then they were stuck uh, with no progress for like a year. So Peter reached out to me to basically try to get someone else into the project to give it a, a bit more push. Uh, and so again, I can't take credit for actually taking doing the book. <laughs> again, just a case of uh, you know someone asking me, and I, I said yes. Um, but yeah, so and I joined the uh, joined the project, and um, again, uh, you know, we looked at the, uh, the 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 first edition. We looked at the, you know, how can we make the book more evergreen so that uh, it, it doesn't go out of date so we again decided against you know making it more sort of hands-on implementation cultural focus book and instead uh, you know we wanted to have a few chapters that highlights different use cases and the success stories almost like you have you know uh, the sort of case studies from aws but go into more sort of depth in terms of technical decisions uh, that the different teams made and you know, why they did certain things uh, and explain the context in which uh, those decisions were made. And we looked at a, uh, we had a few other chapters that to kind of teach you more on the high level in terms of understanding the trade-offs. I've had a lot of, like a whole chapter in the book on showcasing how you can, uh, because before, you know how EventBridge now has the scheduler service that allows you to create uh, ad hoc one-off events. That mm. for a long time was something that was missing from AWS. They didn't have something that, do, that does that. They had the so kind of the cron job, which is not the same as, uh, oh, I want to sell a like, calendar invite for a particular time on a particular day. That's like a one-off schedule event. Uh, and I want something to happen when that uh, that time hits. So 
there was no managed service to do that. And I've implemented something like that like about five times in my career. Uh, one time was for video games. So again, you know, we were building like a tournament system where we need to, as soon as the timer hits the zero, we need to run a process that uh, you know, aggregates all the uh, all the um, the scores from different players, uh, and then um, work out a winner, and then to broadcast everybody that uh, well first broadcast everyone that the tournament finished, and then within like a second or two announce the winner. Um, so you know that is one example. Another example I did in the past was more like a, just like a reminder app kind of thing where. You set a timer to remind you to buy flowers for your mother uh, for Mother's Day, that kind of thing. So there's different requirements in terms of how precise you want the timing to be. Um, obviously, for the sort of reminder app, it's okay to be like you know five seconds late. But if everyone is you know, playing a tournament and they yeah, and it finishes and everyone waits for five seconds, then that's not a very good user experience. Yeah. So, like the different context in terms of requirements is, is different. So in that chapter, I. I think I showed you about five or six different ways to build this system uh, and to to uh, to sort of bring in idea that okay there are different systems that have different requirements and how you build your system and what trade-offs you can, uh, you, you're going to make so as a way to sort of illustrate the uh, sort of uh, system thinking and uh, thinking about the trade-offs and uh, uh, and how you can actually sort of kind of play games if you like. Uh, by combining different services, so that uh, sometimes if you if combine two different services together, they kind of uh, make up for the shortcoming of each. So the, the sum is greater than well. So the, the whole thing is uh, is better than the sum of uh, its individual parts. So you know, that whole chapter around that, and there's other few other chapters that again try to focus on uh, architectural thinking uh, as opposed to you know, here's how you can build this uh, particular service, uh, uh, and here's a code you're gonna write. Uh, so we decided, decided to sort of pivot the books on more so architectural thinking as opposed to uh, uh, implementation, uh, which actually fits well with the uh, with the serverless architecture on AWS title as well. So yeah, those uh, so that book even after I joined, um, I think that was another year, maybe year and a half before uh, it published. I think in total that book uh, was about two and a half years in the making. But yeah, th so those so if you ever think about uh, writing a book, think really hard. Uh, you say yes because these projects are they are long they they are very time consuming if you're working with like a, a publisher like manning they also have multiple rounds of uh, reviews as well that they organized and um, uh, some of the reviews are interesting the i don't know there's a lot of people that uh, criticize you but without giving you any like, actually actionable actionable feedback or sometimes it's just people you know, reading the book that i'm that they're not the um, I do or, or the right audience. So, you know, they, they just don't get it. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so, so there's a lot of those process that you have to work through as well uh, when you're working with a publisher. Nowadays, a lot of people do self-publishing. So, you, you know, you can do, you can write a book and publish it on the, you know, Lean Pub or Gumroad or things like that, which, um, you know, you keep all the, the, the revenue, which is a good thing. We see a very small percentage of the book sales <laughs> for our books. Uh, but, um, uh, with people like Manning, you know, you get some recognition in terms of, uh, uh, you know, uh, building brand or authority. <laughs> yeah, so the exactly same thing I was discussing with one another author in my previous podcast. He mentioned that when you do traditional pub publishing with a publisher and if you do self-publishing, so in self-publishing, you have to take care of everything, like you have to market it yourself and stuff. But uh, if it's published via 
what do you say uh, via a publication then they take care of everything but both the processes own pros and cons and effort is equivalent in both i think yeah yeah, I also say, I would say um, you know, with the traditional publishing model as well, you have a lot more support and also constraints. For example, working with Manning, they give you an editor. So the editor kind of uh, keeps you moving in terms of uh, uh, progress, making progress. But also they, you know, they give you support around someone that will come in and go over your chapter and fix any typos and stuff like that. But they also have very strict sort of standards in terms of you know certain wording uh, references you can or cannot use or even the, the 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 style of the diagrams you use there's um, there's a lot of different uh, sort of constraints that uh, have to fall within say Manning's uh, uh, publishing style guide and things like that but yeah otherwise they also do a lot of publish uh, the, the sort of advertising for you but I have to say the advertising at least with Manning is not as good as it should be. In fact, um, I probably did more for the uh, for for production ready serverless in terms of publishing than the Manning actually did. Uh, and there's a few, quite a few other people that's done a project with uh, Manning since that they have not had the same level of uh, success with their uh, with their video courses because they didn't do a lot of the sort of uh, publishing well the sort of the, the marketing themselves. You know, I do miss the uh, you know when I'm working on my own co video courses, I do miss having someone that I can sort of bounce ideas off and uh, give me some editorial sort of guidelines in terms of, uh, you know, oh yeah, these kind of courses work better for audience or uh, keep your courses, keep your lessons to a certain length because we, because we know, you know, people with the binge watch you know, five hours of videos that are you know, five minutes each. But if you give them like a 30 minute long video, they just, you know, they just stop after 10 minutes, things like that, which, uh, you know, I, I struggle with when I'm just working on my own self-published uh, video courses versus uh, 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 going through the traditional publishing. Oh, that completely makes sense. If we have guiding, especially like for me, if I have to do something, like if I want to write articles and uh, it's very difficult to just figure out what would be a, a catchy title which people will want to read and all those things. So if there's a guiding, it actually helps. Yeah, cool. So, like in terms of uh, uh, like finding topics, I don't think you should uh, worry too much about uh, writing things that other people want to uh, to, to read. Uh, I always uh, want to just I want to write things that I find interesting. Uh, if someone else finds uh, find interesting as well, that's great. I know there's a lot of uh, you know on social media you see a lot of people that are you know writing stuff you know for the sake of getting attention. There's a value in that. I, you know, I can't mm. say having you know thousands or hundreds of thousands of followers is, is not great. It's great, uh, you know, you can, you can build a business out of that. You know, for me, it's, it's more interesting just from a writer, you know, as a writer, for me to write things that are that I'm passionate about. Sometimes, you know, I've got articles that other people want to read, you know, that's great, but sometimes a lot of my articles are just, uh, you know, so specific <laughs> that I find interesting that no one else does. Uh, but that's okay as well, which, uh, which happens to me a lot, uh, but you know, if you write a lot of content, uh, you will find that sometimes uh, one of them would uh, uh, will be the hit. Um, a lot of times uh, that it may not be, and, and that's okay because you're mostly. Uh, I'm writing for myself first and foremost. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I um, I realized I haven't understood something quite as well when I start to write an article about it, or the fact that uh, I did something interesting, uh, I wrote about it, and then I forgot, and then years later I'm like. Oh yeah, I, I've done something like that before. Let me just go search my own blog and find. Okay, that's how I did it before. <laughs> so 
So no, first and foremost, uh, I'm writing for an audience of one myself, and then everybody else. Uh, okay, that's just no, that, that's just a bonus. So, so no, if you want to write something, just do it. Don't worry about whether or not it's something that's going to be a, a hit on the social media or or whatnot. Yeah, that actually helps, and I would keep that mindset. Like I'll write it for myself, and I'm doing that. So I can also remember one uh, one thing you said that you are writing for yourself. For your future self. So, same thing happened with me. So, I I used to work with Postman a lot, but recently, like uh, after joining Google, I didn't work for it, on it for two years. And then I realized, like I started doing a small project for myself, and I realized that uh, we can automate a lot of things. And then I just went back to my past articles and read through it, and I felt proud that yeah, and I'm happy that I wrote that. It's just for myself, yeah. Yeah, so we talked a lot about your book publishing journey. Now I wanted to I want to know about how you publish your online courses. Is there a format, or how do you decide what topic your courses will be on, and how do you organize it? Um, in terms of uh, choosing a topic, uh, I guess that that's where it's different from writing because you're trying to sell a product, so you do have to find something that you think there's going to be a market for. So I think. Uh, I mean, I looked at uh, you know, for me, serverless is my sort of main focus. I look at uh, you know, different aspects of, of uh, challenges that people sh- would have, and uh, whether or not it's something that, that they will, you know, they'll be happy to spend money to learn about. So, so I decided to you know do the AppSync masterclass. I had the other courses on step functions and uh, Lambda uh, best practices, and uh, now you know, testing serverless. Uh, t- um, testing service, uh, service architectures as well. Um, those are all specific topics that I, that I, you know, from experience that I know people are interested in because they ask me uh, questions about it. Maybe the absent class, uh, the, the, maybe the absent, uh, the absent class uh, master class was uh, probably a slightly odd one. That one I just really wanted to do. I didn't know if there's a market for it. It was a you know somewhat new service, but uh, I think uh, you know when you're talking about building a social a Twitter clone. Uh, full yeah. stack. Um, is, it, you know, to me, it sounded interesting project. I wanted to do it, and uh, and luckily, I, I think uh, the fact that uh, um, it's you know, full stack, and I think uh, it, we were able to attract a lot more front end focus developers than I have done with my other courses, which are tend to be more so back end uh, focused, specifically talking about step functions or lambda. Um, so, Amazon Masterclass uh, was uh, was definitely probably the the, the most popular one of. Uh, all the courses that I've uh, self-published uh, so far, I don't really have a specific uh, model apart from just uh, based on you know my uh, gut feeling or of well based on how many times I I, I get asked questions about a specific thing, uh, I decide okay maybe there's uh, there's some interest uh, in the, that particular topic. There's uh, um, in terms of uh, actually launching the video course uh, for both the production release serverless and absent masterclass, I found it uh, in terms of marketing. It's really great to have uh, a regularly uh, drops of uh, little updates. Oh, I'm working on this new content today. Working on uh, just give people like um, a, a way to kind of remind them. Okay, I'm working on this thing. Just you know, uh, uh, and it is coming so that uh, over over time you build up some hype and interest in the in the in the project, and then eventually you open for early access and. Uh, uh, and uh, hopefully, you know, you, you're gonna attract a decent number of fair people to sign up, um, because um, with the a lot of video courses, I find that um, a lot of your revenue on signups are gonna be in the first uh, the first couple of months. 
And after that, it's like follows a massive uh, as a bell curve, but a really long tail after that. So it's um so revenue wise, uh, most of the like maybe fifty percent of revenue in the was in the, like in the first four or five months, and then everything else just really slow, uh, small uh, uh, over time. Uh, but uh, but it's still ticking along. There's still people you know, signing up and and all that. Um, in terms of uh, the actual launch itself, nowadays uh, there's a lot of different platforms. Uh, uh, Teachable is probably the biggest one. Uh, I'm using a platform called uh, Thinkific because at the time it was uh, it was cheaper. It doesn't have quite as much uh, features as uh, a Teachable, uh, but at this point I'm kind of you know pretty embedded with them. I got so much content on them already, so it's uh, it's kind of difficult. Uh, launching the offline vid- uh, like workshops that is slightly different because it's more of a recurring thing as opposed to you know, a video course where on demand course where you create it and then the now this you know, that's like a one big launch event. Um, so the so for the production ready serverless, uh, uh, once I've got a content ready, every time I run it, every three four months I run it, I will go through the content again and update them, make sure that they're still up to date. And that's one of the value that you get from the workshop versus uh, like on demand the video course. But it also means that uh, I've got this uh, constant two three month cycle of marketing that. Uh, Okay, I do a bunch of video co- uh, content on social media and blog posts uh, to, to promote the, the workshop. And then, okay, once it finished, I'm like, oh my God, so, so, so glad it's finished. Uh, and then take, take some time off and then start goes through the whole marketing so cycle again. So it's, um, it's, so from the marketing point of view, it's, uh, uh, it's different. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's less the sort of you know, drip, drip, drip towards the launch event and then you know, big bang. Uh, to the most sort of constant every couple of months, uh, you know, you do the same sort of marketing uh, cycle again. But yeah, so I don't know. Does that, does that answer the question? Yeah, it it answers a lot of questions. But I also want to ask, like, you have a very good uh, following. Obviously, it it gets built uh, slowly as you keep on adding value. How did you manage to have so much following? And it has been continued, like it has continued for years as well. I think it's growing a lot so how what was the journey there and how did you get so much fan following and people following you i mean the fact that i was one of the earliest um, adopters for serverless uh, probably helps in terms of uh, uh, you know having a lot of people follow my content uh, specifically for social media following um, and i guess uh, from what i've learned from other people which uh, who, who do much better than me um i i think uh, you know the, the key is to just be posting things consistently um i i'm actually not very good at this uh, i go through mm-hmm. like a cycle of okay i'm a bit bored i need to do something so i go to social media spend a bit of, uh, you know, a bunch of time posting things so you see me really active for a few days and then nothing for me for like another a couple of weeks so i don't do this consistently enough um but uh, now, when I'm actually quite active, you also find that uh, again, now, a lot of times, I, you know, there's a lot of things I share online. Uh, they, you know, people don't either don't notice nothing, you no. Know, but occasionally, you get one or two things that just uh, you know, out of the blue, a lot of people see it uh, because you know someone who's uh, who's got a lot of followers will be cheated or, or whatever. Then suddenly, you get you know, a nice boost there. Um, but I think the really the real like, key thing really is just to just do it consistently. There are lots of tools that can help you do that, and uh, I use uh, Hype Fury to kind of help me schedule tweets. Um, but uh, so that uh, when I've got like, loads of ideas to do, uh, to, you know, to to post, uh, to share my blog post and things like that, uh, a lot of time I can use that to just schedule it. Uh, so that um, 
I don't fall into my habit of uh, you know posting a lot for three days and then nothing for the next three months. So, uh, but but yeah, no, that tool is going to help you sort of manage that a bit better. Most of the time, I, I use it to uh, you know, social media. I use it to just kind of share my content. I don't tend to post uh, too many sort of you know, just opinions, takes, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, occasionally, but you know, apart from occasionally, where it's just you know, things like the, the prime video thing, for for example, uh, there's just so much noise now. There's so much nonsense. I just wanted to sort of jump in, um, you know, give my two cents, and um, share my opinion because the Everyone else is doing it, and uh, there's just too many noise and nonsense about it. So I wanted to say something myself. Um, but yeah, um, I, I don't really have a, like a you know, answer apart from I think the, 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 the one thing that I've heard everybody talk about is just to do it consistently. Uh, that's yeah. the main thing. That is actually a very good answer. And about like scheduling the post. So I figured out that there's a tool to schedule post only like this January, and like it's awesome and it, it really helps actually because there are days when you don't want to write stuff and and then there are days where you want to write a lot so these tools really help yeah cool yeah i think another thing that i've learned a lot as well is uh, again from people that's uh, that's a lot better at uh, doing social media than i am uh, is that uh, you have to kind of tailor the content for the um, for the uh, for the platform so uh, i found that the for linkedin people tend to sort of engage i don't know if it's you know, good or bad but uh, or, or whether or not they actually pay attention to what you're writing but um so longer forms of post if you like rather than just a, like a link to your article uh works a lot better on linkedin where you can almost sort of you know, share a lot of the sort of tldr of the article uh, if you like uh, in, in the post they explain uh, a lot of things um as opposed to like twitter where you know, now you can have longer forms of content on twitter but before you know it's the uh, you know, 200 or 140 characters, there's only so much you can write. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so on Twitter, you know, threads is how you can get a lot of attention. Uh, again, I was, I'm not sure if those attentions are always good because um, I do this myself as well, where I see something that, okay, it looks like, it, it sounds like it should be good. I kind of like it. And then I'll say, oh, I'll read it afterwards, but I don't. <laughs> um, so that, that so it counts as engagement, but not really because I haven't really engaged the content itself. It's just something that sounds like it should be good, uh, should be good to judge, you know, judge it by the first three lines. And that's another thing that I learned as well that um, on LinkedIn, for instance, uh, you know, make your I think first three or four lines uh, interesting so that. Uh, now, people would uh, click on that, expand, and hopefully read the, the rest of uh, your stuff. And also things like having pictures help. Uh, and nowadays, uh, I use the mid-journey to generate more interesting pictures uh, for my posts and articles. Uh, and also just have fun with, with, with uh, mid-journey because it's, uh, it's actually really cool. I love it. But yeah, so those are things that I think really helps in terms of creating content that uh, that hopefully would help you drive more engagement. Uh, again, I'm not sure if engagement is... Uh, it's always, uh, you know, really people engaging with the content, but uh, but certainly, you know, it helps drive in terms of the algorithm and you know, driving more traffic to um, to your content. I also find with LinkedIn, the, the conversation on LinkedIn comments is a lot better compared to Twitter. Uh, you can actually have some decent, uh, decent maybe not arguments, but decent de- debates on the LinkedIn's comments. Um, uh, which I find quite you know, sometimes quite engaging uh, f- for me, just uh, you know, going through comments and answering questions and uh, having some back and forth and just, t- just get a different viewpoint, which is uh, always good to have. But sometimes people are just nasty. You can just ignore those people. <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah, so so hopefully that uh, so no that, that's useful uh, if you want to yeah. build a, a more for, more for following on the social media. Yeah, it's it's very helpful, and I also wanted to know how can one become an AWS serverless hero? What's the journey there? So AWS has got the like internal committee the, um, uh, uh, for nominating and choosing uh, who to bring into the heroes program. So. You can't directly influence that, uh, but what you can do is just you not know, be helpful to other people. Uh, you know, sharing ideas, organize uh, meetups, uh, uh, you know, public speaking. Okay, okay, I guess it's sharing ideas. So just do the kind of things that you would do to help people, and uh, hopefully someone will notice. Uh, you know, it may not always happen straight away. Sometimes, uh, you know, I still see a lot of people that uh, should be heroes but are not. Hopefully, you know, if you keep doing the right thing. Eventually, uh, that's going to happen. I hope. So that makes sense. So now I want to go at personal side of your life, and the podcast will come to an end after that. So I want to know what does your day-to-day -day life look like because you have achieved so many things. When I just search for you in Google, and I find so many things. So, so do you have a routine or something, or what's your day-to-day uh, -day life look like? Yeah, it really depends. Uh, I mean, working for uh, for myself and working as a consultant it means that uh, you know, sometimes you're really busy uh, when you've got a, a, a big project or there's, uh, there's some deadline looming. But sometimes um, you know you just you know you're just not doing anything, uh, so you can just do other things, uh, chill out, and uh, go to the park and take a walk and things like that, uh, which is quite nice. So for me, the last couple of months I've been taking some time off. So right now, um, my day to day is spending a lot of time on my Xbox. <laughs> But sometimes, you know, when I've got a when I've got a project on, it could be you know working depending on whether it's a U.S. or European uh, client. Uh, I could be working, you know, from three o'clock in the afternoon to to midnight, uh, or sometimes it's working from the normal so European time. Uh, it really depends on the uh, on 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 the project on and on, on the client. So unfortunately, I don't really have like a, you know, a routine per se. Uh, it's it's all quite fluid. Uh, uh, based on whether or not I've got a project on and uh, and and, and uh, what else is going on in my life. Cool, that makes sense. Who is your inspiration or role model? Um, I guess uh, what well, in terms of uh, software uh, software engineering or is that just uh, in general? Um, both. You can talk about both. Yeah, I guess I uh, don't really have a uh, like one uh, you know specific role model, but I look at uh, you know a lot of uh, successful people and. Uh, you know, I try to you know learn from you know, learn from them and uh, and uh, and try to take you know, what I can what I can from them. Uh, in terms of a uh, software engineering wise, uh, you know, I used to really idolize the you know people like uh, um, people like Joe Armstrong, uh, the creator of Erlang, and uh, uh, and, uh, and and people like uh, I see sort of uh, people like uh, you know, Neil Ford, uh, people that you know, from ThoughtWorks, and you know those uh, people that you know, there were. That really experienced that has got lots of uh, lots of really you know valuable insights and uh, you know people that were I was reading you know their articles I was uh, as I was uh, you know, growing up and and, uh, and growing as a software engineer um, so I don't really, I guess I don't have like one particular role model but just lots of people whose uh, whose ideas I, like, I enjoyed the reading um, whose visions I, I really enjoyed um, in terms of uh, I guess you know uh, in, in normal life. Uh, yeah, I guess I don't really have a particular role model either. Um, again, you know, lots of people I looked at, uh, well, successful people that I look at and uh, see I can learn from you know, uh, learn from them. 
uh, you know, so I'm a big football fan, so you know, uh, so you know, idolized people like uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, uh, things like that. I've read his uh, autobiography and uh, some some footballers. Uh, again, you know, footballers are not always the, the you know kind of the, the nicest people. <laughs> that you, you know, you read about their personal lives, uh, uh, but in terms of how they approach, yeah, so you know, this really competitive. Uh, a competitive uh, 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 profession, you know, and the kind of the, the sort of sacrifices a lot of them make, um, and how they could sort of uh, approach uh, performance uh, and, and and also team sports. Uh, it's just really interesting stuff. Uh, and also, I work with uh, people that uh, which you know who, who are really inspirational. But the the company I talk about, um, the games company I talk about, where I did that uh, uh, multiplayer online game, for instance. Um, uh, the founder, or at least the one, the, one of the co-founders, uh, uh, came from, uh, um, came from the sort of like army background, and uh, some of the things that sort of he kind of uh, some of the vision that he brought into the company in terms of the culture, how he sort of maintains that culture. All you know, that that stuff was, uh, in fact, uh, you know, I, I took a pay cut to join the company to just so that I could learn about the culture and uh, how the company operates, uh, which was uh, really fascinating. And they they actually got bought by. Uh, uh, by a, a supercell, which is uh, in itself a really, really interesting, a really interesting company. Again, from the cultural uh, and sort of organization point of view, and uh, that company I worked at, the Space Ape, they took a lot of ideas from supercell. Again, they, you know, they they're taking inspiration from supercell, and uh, uh, and I took a lot of inspiration from the the founders in terms of um, one of the things that I learned was the you know that the, as a founder, you've got this sort of like a vision for the company, the, the value of the company. Uh, it's not enough to just say once. So you have to keep reminding people, have to keep saying it regularly, uh, because you've got new people come uh, join the company, um, and uh, some of the stuff, and also the culture of the company is as much about what people do as uh, as what people don't do or shouldn't do. Uh, and so they are really quick at uh, identifying, you know, people uh, showing uh, sort of like entitlement, uh, uh, sort of attitude, uh, if you like, and they're really quick to sort of come in and to sort of press. Put their foot down and say, "Yeah, this is not the right culture. This is not what we do," and uh, and put a stop on things that you know people shouldn't be doing. So if you're seeing you know, harassment at work or people being nasty to each other, again, you know you can't just allow that to happen and fester over time. And uh, you have to just put your foot down and just say, "Nope, this is not who we are." And yeah, so a super interesting co- company. Um, yeah, I don't know if no, I, no, I'll say he's a he, he, he's a role model, but certainly I took a lot of inspiration from. Uh, how so he manages the, the the culture of that company for my case i too have a lot of role models and you are one of them so i just wanted to say Thank uh, you. <laughs> yeah i really what is admire your content and i have learned so much from you so i just wanted to like mention that and being able to say it to you directly on face it's a good victory for me and yeah apart from that like i have one role, role model in Google. So she's like a director and like I always look up to her and it's awesome uh, from there. Uh, and yeah, many yeah, thank you for sharing your journey and uh, who you admire. And uh, we are coming towards the end of the podcast. So I just wanted to get your suggestions for people who are at the start of their career and if they want to go in their in consultancy area. So yeah, both sides. Yeah, I think if you're at the start of your career, probably consulting might not be the the right um, uh, I think it's the, the right way for you to go just yet. Um, because as a consultant, um, now you kind of expect you to have experienced a lot of different things. Uh, so I would focus, you know, at the start of your career, 
focus on just um, you know, learning as much as you as you can. It doesn't hurt to join like a consulting company uh, agency uh, where you can you know, take on lots of different projects. But of course, you have you no know, as well. You have less control yourself in terms of uh, what projects are, are available and uh, what projects that you get uh, sort of kind of placed into. But uh, no, it's, it's, it's a very good way to uh, to kind of experience lots of different kind of projects. Again, lots of different environments. And understand that uh, okay, different different places have got different constraints. Uh, and understanding how to sort of uh, kind of um, sort of succeed in the different environments uh, that's a really important and undervalued well. A skill because it's it's hard to kind of kind of quantify it, but that's kind of you know as a company hiring a consultant, you kind of want to just talk to someone and know that okay he's seen some stuff in his lifetime, um, mm -hmm. and uh, that that's hard to do when you're starting out, but certainly you know you can you can get a lot further say within five six years um, work by working in different kind of different projects uh, you know across a time versus um, you know taking a, a one job. And you know, be, being really comfortable in that job for a long time. That having said that, it's also a different uh, kind of level of experience comparing, you know, someone who's done multiple projects but never actually take the project uh, or take the product from you know day one or year one to year ten, uh, because the uh, well, assuming that the product is successful again, you know, it's not to you. A lot of time it's just not luck. If that product grows and matures, then you becomes you know, then you learn along the way the different product problem that comes along uh, at year seven versus year one. Uh, you know, very different kind of well, like the prime video for example, um, the article. You know, year one, you know, they don't have a lot of traffic, so you know, servers make perfect sense. But maybe year two or year three, now they've got really high traffic. The system is popular. So their context have changed, and now they gotta do something different. And so again, you know, you learn under different uh, um, uh, in, diff uh, in the sort of different stages of that uh, of that uh, product, uh, which is um, something that uh, may not be available to you as an experience if you just do that sort of year one experience at different projects. Uh, but I think in consultancy wise, uh, usually you get you know placed into different parts of the project. Maybe sometimes at the start, sometimes in the middle, sometimes. Uh, when it's uh, more mature and just needs maintenance, so joining consultancy may not be a bad thing. Uh, but again, it's it's kind of down to luck. I mean, I, I'm probably not very good in terms of like actually planning my career. But I have I had to, you know, not to a very um, sort of fine grain detail, but a rough idea in terms of uh, you know I wanted to sort of experience different things at certain stages of my career. Uh, you know, as, you know, when I once I sort of you know. Um, uh, sort of went through gaming and I did a lot of that stuff. I I knew wanted to sort of kind of experience something slightly different. I wanted to so so you know I I you know I left my um kind of comfortable job at the time um went somewhere slightly more slightly uncomfortable. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I took on this, uh, more responsibilities. Uh, so when I went to uh, just eat, which like a um, food delivery service as a, a principal engineer. So suddenly I'm sort of doing more stuff around the organization as opposed to just the. Uh, Heads down, the writing code, which uh, was you know, kind of uncomfortable because you know you are now going from just doing stuff yourself to influencing other people. But it's a skill that, uh, which I have to say, in my first job as a principal, I didn't do a very good job of. Uh, but over time, as I took on those other jobs that are similar, uh, it's a skill that you develop over time, and it's something that I was interested in developing. So. I have some rough ideas in terms of uh, things I want to experience, like the gaming company, 
uh, that I joined later on to, uh, because I want to see the culture uh, versus uh, other jobs I've, took on, I've taken on because I want to take on additional responsibilities and grow certain parts of my skill sets. And, and yeah, so you know, by, the, by the time I went to consultant, uh, I feel I'm a much more sort of well-rounded engineer, but also as, you know, as, as a person as well, having experienced lots of more things. Um, so I think, you know, I guess uh, if you're talking about like a video game, uh, think mm-hmm. of it as, uh, as uh, like, uh, no, to, to, to get to a consultant, uh, you want to, you know, take off a few achievements along the way, like, uh, uh, you know, have, have done some of these, done some of that, and then I uh, think, uh, you know, it, it would make your life a lot better, um, uh, a lot easier as a consultant. Okay, that makes complete sense. So that was supposed to be my last question, but one more question came in my head, so I thought sure. I can just ask. So there's a trend these days, many people like go and create startups. What are your thoughts on that? Should we have a career experience, a career journey, and then do a startup? Or what should we do if you have a startup idea? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a difficult one to say. Um, startups for me, is just uh, risky. Um, most startups fail. Um, and uh, you, you're certainly more likely to succeed um, if you start up, uh, if you so sort of found your start later in life. I think uh, I looked at some statistics. Uh, most, uh, I guess, some most of the successful startups, even though some of the outliers like Facebook or Meta, you know, they started out by a guy in his twenties. Uh, but most uh, successful founders, uh, they started the company around forty after they're forty. So, from from a sort of data point of view, you're more likely to succeed uh, if you create your startup uh, after you know later in life. But a lot of the founders that are successful, when they become successful, it also wasn't their first startup attempt. So okay. a lot of them also had previous attempts uh, of uh, starting a company and failed and then learned and then uh, and then eventually they uh, they got to that point um, of succeeding. So it, I mean, personally, I, I don't really want to start a, um, a startup company just because uh, it's... Um, uh, it's it's going to be a lot of work. Um, you know, I, I used to work in startups I, you know, as a, as an employee, and I was burning the candle at both ends. And you can see that you know, the people that are found the founders will be working even harder. Uh, but obviously, the, the the payoff is different if they become successful. You know, they they'll be a you know multi millionaires. Yeah. Uh, but no, no, I, I might get a cake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, but. Um, um, uh, but but still, you know, startups are a really interesting environment to work in. Um, it's you know, if you only ever work in the sort of enterprise environment, uh, startups can can some can can feel a bit uncomfortable. Uh, everything is a breakneck a speed. Um, you know, you make very different uh, trade offs, uh, and uh, uh, and some of the sort of some of the most intense learning uh, periods I've had in my uh, in my career came from when I was working in a startup on projects that are. That are really intense. That I was working really long hours, but also I was learning so much in the such short space of time because of how intense those projects are. Um, that you know, sometimes I I'm able to sort of acquire years worth of experience that you know, I would have to take years to learn in other uh, other sort of you know, jobs I've taken in um, you know in my career within like six months time because you know we were doing a really intensive thing, doing some really interesting, um, working very uh, very very. Um, long hours and very intense but at the same time you also learn a lot as well so i do i do think working in startups is, is is great uh i am not sure about starting a company uh and um just because uh, companies fail so easily and mm-hmm. uh you know i'm not a particularly um, um entrepreneurial type if you like uh, 
uh, I like to help entrepreneurs or other star founders uh, to, to sort of realize the idea, but I'm not that keen, at least not, not at, uh, I guess, my stage, um, my, my age, to, uh, to work too hard. <laughs> Okay, that makes completely sense. And all I also want to add, like even uh, like before joining Google, I had an opportunity to work in a startup, and I would say like those two years were like the best. I learned so much there. I mean, it cannot be compared. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, but like I said, you you probably also worked a lot harder. Yeah, a lot of hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my parents. Uh, so it was during the pandemic. So I used to like just in front of the computer and work, nothing else. My parents used to give food to me and they used to remind me that you have to eat. <laughs> so it was, I mean, it was not, I would say I was too much into it. Obviously, if I want to take break, I can easily take break, but it was interesting as well as there was like long working hours as well. Yeah, that's, a, that, that's, that's similar to my experience in the past as well. So this comes to an end of our podcast and I learned a lot from this conversation. So thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Jan. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.